Thank you for listening to this lunchtime talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. In this live recording, photographer Ed Douglas discusses the work of Deanne Arbus and her contemporaries in the display Deanne Arbus, American Portraits. Good afternoon, everybody. My name's Maria Zagala. I'm the Associate Curator of Prints, Drawings and Photographs here at the Art Gallery. And it's my great pleasure to uh, welcome you to this lunchtime talk in uh, this wonderful Deanne Arbus uh, exhibition and to welcome our speaker today who is Ed Douglas, a uh, photographer and art educator who we are really delighted has accepted our invitation to reflect on uh, Deanne Arbus and the work of her contemporaries that are in this exhibition. Um, Ed brings a special perspective really that we haven't had a chance to hear um, during the public programs for this exhibition. And Ed, uh, that perspective, I think, is informed by his, him uh, coming from the United States. Uh, Ed was born in San Francisco and he studied photography at, uh, at the, South, at the um, San Francisco State University um, and uh, graduating in the late 1960s. And he grew up in a context which was informed by the work of these photographers in a way that uh, others who are from uh, Adelaide, from South Australia, may not relate to this work in the same way, the same direct way, perhaps, that Ed, Ed does. Um, so Ed uh, migrated to Australia uh, in 1973 and he lectured in Sydney at the Sydney College of the Arts um, with John Williams, a well-known photographer. And in 1977, he was appointed um, to the South Australian School of Art. And there, he launched the first Bachelor of Arts course in photography. And really, this was the beginning of a professional photography education here in South Australia. So Ed taught uh, at the South Australian School of Art for 26 years. And um, since he's retired, he has concentrated on his own practice and um, it's been a great pleasure uh, for me as a curator to see the wonderful work that he's created um, in the decade or more since he retired. So please um, welcome Ed Douglas and we look forward to your presentation, Ed. Well, thank you for coming, I'm quite impressed uh, I did create two talks. One was if there were six people here, <laughs> and the other is for a large group. Well, it's the latter, so uh, this is going to be the more academic talk. I, we won't be walking around the gallery. I'd... To do this exhibition justice in the time we have is unfortunately impossible. Several PhDs could be produced on what we can see here and what is implied here. This exhibition, like the proverbial iceberg, what is here is the tip of the iceberg. And what is implied here and below the surface, to me and I think anyone who does a bit of research, you'll find it's gigantic. I will be making some comments on Arbus 
and some comments on the total exhibition. It is also, it will also be, sorry, I will also be commenting on a few things that are not here. I'd like to start with a quote from one of my favorite photographers who's in this exhibition, Walker Evans. I go to the street for the education of my eye and for the sustenance that the eye needs. The hungry eye, and my eye is hungry. As a student and graduate student in San Francisco in the late 60s, I was aware of several of the photographers in this exhibition. Walker Evans, of course, Arthur Felig, or uh, Ouija as he's also known, Lizette Modell, whose work is on that wall there, and Gary Winogrand and Lee Friedlander, all who are in this show. For 50 years now, aspects of their careers, many of their images, and a number of their books have been a part of my personal and my professional life. The majority of the photographs in this show have come from the National Gallery of Australia in Canberra. A large part of this show uh, was chosen by Anne O'Hare, curator of photography at the National Gallery. She also wrote a, a, the large wall texts. This exhibition is on tour and has previously been seen at the National Gallery in Canberra and the National Gallery of Victoria and also at the Heidi Museum, um, the ex-home of John and Sunday Reed in Victoria. Our own Julie Robinson, senior curator of prints, drawings, and photography here at the gallery has included additional Arbus uh, prints and has also added a very helpful background, uh, the, the helpful background information on each photographer. Including Arbus, there are 11 photographers uh, and artists in this exhibition. Of the 11 artists, four are still alive. William Klein, Lee Friedlander, William Eggleston, and Katie Grannon. The span of birth years in this show is interesting, to me anyway, at my age. Arthur Felig, or Ouija, was born in 1899, and Katie Grannon was born in 1969. There's 70 years difference between the two photographers. Ouija was born just 60 years after Louis Daguerre's photographic process was made public in France in 1839. That same year, Daguerre also recorded the first person ever photographed. Daguerre, in his first floor studio, pointed the camera out the window at a, a busy Paris boulevard. The exposure was quite long, I'm guessing 10 minutes or possibly more. One man stopped to have his shoes shine during that time and he was recorded on Daguerre's plate. 
So that's where street photography began in 1839. Thinking of the horse and buggy world that Ouija was born into, I find the sensational images that he made even more extraordinary. And the ones that we have here of Ouija are relatively tame compared to some of them. I must also reluctantly admit that knowing that Katie Grannon was born in the year that Neil Armstrong walked on the moon, her work seems tamer and less adventurous. I mention my response as an example of how certain information can affect our perception. Just outside the exit of the last gallery, you will find a video titled Masters of Photography, Deanne Arbus. It was made in 1972. It includes an introduction by Dune Arbus, excuse me, Diane's daughter, and a text of Deanne talking, which is delivered by an actor. Because the original recording was of poor quality. It must be said that we have very little information from Arbus herself. So this video is of great significance. Um, I missed it the first couple times I came to the gallery, so if you haven't seen the video and you want to know more about Arbus and what she had to say, I highly recommend the video. The other thing that I learned in the video, for 50 years I've been calling Arbus Diane. But in the video, her daughter, who should know how her name's pronounced, <laughs> called her Deanne. So we'll try to stick to Deanne. Others who appear in the video are Lisette Modell, who's in this show, and significant, Arbus's significant teacher, and John Sarkowski director of the Department of Photography at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Sarkowski included Arbus in her only major exhibition during her lifetime. That exhibition, New Documents, uh, which appeared in 1967, included three relatively unknown artists. All three are in this show, Gary Winogrand, Deanne Arbus, and Lee Friedlander. Just be, being included in a show at, the, at MoMA was a career breakthrough for any artist. The new document show de generated initial confusion. Critics and the public were familiar with documentary photography in an academic context and done by people like sociologist Lewis Hine. Viewers are confused, or viewers were confused, by the term documentary photography being applied to subjective street photography. Lewis Hine, with a combination of written research and his objective photographs as a sociologist, was able to convince the US government in the 1930s to change the child labor laws. 
In deplorable conditions, many children were injured or killed while at work. Walker Evans's photographs have much in common with Lewis Hines' photographic style. With both photographers, there seems to be a direct and honest portrayal of the subject matter with a minimum of artistic license or subjectivity. None of the three photographers in the new documents uh, exhibition, Arbus Friedlander or Winogrand, was a sociologist. They were not scientists or the police. Also, they were not depicting the world objectively. Theirs was a subjective portrayal of the world. I can remember that the type of photography in this exhibition was originally called or referred to as documentary style photography, but that um, title didn't take long for to be changed to simply documentary photography, which is erroneous. Um, it isn't truly documentary photography. It's in the style of documentary photography. William Klein, also in this show, describes his approach from a photographer's point of view, and I think quite honestly. He had returned to New York after a few years in Europe. Dismayed by the social changes and the emphasis on materialism in the US, Klein began actively photographing in New York. He says, I approached New York like a fake anthropologist, and I treated New Yorkers like they were tribal Zulus. The Masters of Photography video, or in that video, Arbus describes her attraction to the people she photographs, but also her need to separate, be separate, and distance herself from her subjects. Her photographs do not show the sort of compassion that we see in the photographs of Mary Ellen Mark, or Milton Rogovan, or even Walker Evans, all in this show. There's a feeling that visually and emotionally, particularly when Arbus includes Flash, that her subjects are portrayed as specimen-like. As viewers, we may question the reason for and the meaning behind this look. Arbus does mention that she liked the way Flash separates the figure from the background. But is this enough reason enough? She does not mention what she found meaningful in this technique, in this look, just that she liked it. While I've been considering this show, I have been reading a book titled About Rothko by Dora Ashton. I was surprised to find quotes in the text by the painter Mark Rothko that seemed uh, to also relate to Arbus and this exhibition. This is the quote. Painting a picture is not a form of self-expression. Painting, like every other art, is a language by which you communicate something 
about the world. I must add that the world Rothko is referring to is both the external world and the internal world. I do think that the power of Diane Arbus's image, images is that her images involve both worlds. The people we see in an Arbus photograph are part of the outer everyday world, but their unusualness, their intensity, and the way Arbus presents them has an emotional and at times a confrontational effect on the viewer. I suspect that everyone in this room who's been looking at her work would have experienced that. Arbus was willing to go into situations where her personal safety was at times at risk. This seems to confirm that her sitters became her language. It is through the, her sitters that she was able to communicate her thoughts or perceptions about the world. At the same time, I would argue that her sitters quite possibly represented an inner aspect of her own psyche. I'm led to this position, or sorry, I'm led to the position that compassion is not the driving force behind her images. By the fact that Arbus refers to her sitters as freaks, this did surprise me, and in the video, uh, she does make that comment. Arbus seemed to be looking for a particular type of image, one that indicated social distancing and alienation. The boy with the hand grenade in Central Park is an example. Looking at the 11 images on the contact sheet, uh, which is exposed in that uh, cabinet uh, under glass in a book, the boy smiles in some of the images and does not seem unusual or deranged, except in one image where he may be performing for the camera. This potentially misleading image, now, famous, now the famous Arbus photograph, is definitely the most powerful and challenging of the 11 images that she took of the boy. It is obviously what Arbus wanted. Has she taken advantage of the boy? I think with Arbus's subject matter as viewers, we each must confront the dilemma that exists between our potentially voyeuristic fascination with her images and the moral rights of her subjects. I'm not sure, Arbus died in 71. I'm not sure that these photographs could be made today. I suspect that she would be sued uh, at times. People may have agreed to having the, their photograph taken, but they didn't know what the image was going to be look, going to look like or how it might be used. I'm softening my position now. That's, <laughs> that said, I think that we may, as viewers, also try to find a balance where we can accept that the image of the boy, and this is, works with all, many of the images here, that she chose 
the image of the boy that she chose is connected with the visual language by which Arbus is trying to communicate something about the world, her world and our world. With the boy, she seems to be referring to the outer world and the craziness of the Vietnam War, as well as her inner world that is somehow connected to freaks, outcasts, and people at the edge of society. Arbus is not overtly a humanitarian. She is not advocating social change or displaying the depth of her compassion. Rather, I suggest, she is creating a subjective language by which she can communicate her vision of the world. I'm going back to that reference of Roth, that quote of Rothko's. It is a joy, uh, change of pace. <laughs> it's a joy for me to see these artworks here in Adelaide. In the late 1970s, 1978 or 79, at a guess, a large Arbus show was exhibited here in the gallery, and sometime later a sizable exhibition of Lee Friedlander's photographs was also shown here. My memory is that the exhibitions were relatively ignored by the Adelaide public. Arbus, I was fairly new to Adelaide at, at that period, and I was coming with all of this enthusiasm from the San Francisco Bay Area and my love of photography, and I thought everybody's going to just be so grateful to see this work, as I was grateful, but they weren't. <laughs> Arbus did create some interest, but Friedlander, it seemed, was beyond most viewers' perception of photography at that time. Nearly 40 years later, I'm very pleased to witness the current interest in these artists and this work. I think it is fair to say that some of the photo photography, uh, some of this photography, possibly most, has come to exist because of New York City and its ultra-large mass of humanity. I don't think Arbus could make the series of photographs that she made in possibly any other place. As a graduate student in the much smaller city of San Francisco, this art, this aspect of US photography, felt to me to be East Coast. The intensity, the imagery, did not remind me of San Francisco. It probably felt as foreign to me as it may to you viewing this work here in the context of Adelaide. An implication in the title and structure of this, this show may imply that Arbus is at the apex of some importance or fame pyramid, and the other photographers here are somehow lesser artists. Of the artists here, most are quite famous in the US and will be included in any comprehensive history of 20th century photography in America. From my first viewing of this exhibition, I have felt an elephant in this case is not in the room. 
The missing photographer is the Swiss-American photographer Robert Frank, born in 1924, uh, who is still alive. Frank immigrated to the U.S. in 1947 at the age of 23, and initially he worked as a fashion photographer for Harper's Bazaar magazine. While working in the fashion industry, he met Deanne and Alan Arbus, the husband and wife fashion photographers. Coming from Europe, Frank's view of U.S. society and culture was initially positive, but his views soon changed as he was confronted with the fast pace and again the overemphasis on materialism. With the support of Walker Evans and Edward Steichen, Robert Frank received a grant from the Guggenheim Foundation in 1955 for his proposal to travel across the U.S. and photograph all strata of the society. In the style of Jack Kerouac, Frank traveled around the U.S. in a series of road trips over the period of two years. He took 28,000 35 millimeter images. And from those 28,000 images, he chose 83 for his book, which is titled The Americans, and it was published in 1958. Frank's book was something like a film noir version of American culture. It was shocking to many, particularly those who believed in the materialism of the American dream. What he saw was a shallow, rough-edged, and disjointed culture that seemed to be closer in its values to a cowboy movie than it was to European history and cultural refinement. Frank's influence on documentary-style photography in the U.S. from 1958 is definitely a visual element in much of the current exhibition that surrounds us. Although I have not read anywhere that Arbus mentions Robert Frank, it is my belief that the Americans established a view of and an attitude toward the American culture that is compatible with Arbus's later vision. In 1958, when The Americans was published, uh, is all, this, that time period is also around the time when Arbus um, left her husband uh, to pursue her own photographic uh, career and interests. To sort of bring some of these people together and the making uh, of Arbus, in a sense, is what I'm about to try to do. Walker Evans's matter-of-fact approach, Ouija's blatant sensationalism, Lizette Modell's intrusive closeness and visual boldness, and Robert Frank's film noir vision, all for me, point toward the artist that Deanne Arbus became. Robert Frank's book, The Americans, came out three years after Edward Steichen's blockbuster exhibition and book, The Family of Man, in 1955, which was initially shown at MoMA, New York. Steichen was concerned with, quote, the commonalities that bind people and cultures around the world. This was 
a response to the cultural and human damage caused by World War I. Over the next few years, the family of man toured to six continents, 37 countries, and was viewed by an estimate, estimated 9 million people. The exhibition brought together 503 uh, photographs from eight, 68 countries and 273 individual photographers. The ex exhibition and catalog had a huge influence on people around the world and inspired many to make photography their life. And I th I'm mentioning this because this is some of the material that's below the surface in, in this uh, iceberg. Robert Frank had seven photographs in the Family of Man exhibition. Deanne and Alan Arvis had one. Lizette Modell had one. Gary Winogrand had two. And the only Australian photographer included was Sydney photographer David Moore with one photograph. As you will realize, I'm not covering every artist in this exhibition. The information on the walls can do that, and Googling the artist will also help. I have put together an information page with suggestions for further research, on, uh, which, which is, uh, Maria has. Uh, please take one if delving deeper into these photograph photographers and the many influence, uh, influences related to this show. If they're of interest, please take one of those sheets. I must confess my love for two of the photographers uh, here in this show, Lee Friedlander and Gary Winogrand. Um, Gary Winogrand uh, was born in 1928 and died in 1984. He's typical of the dedicated, uh, of a dedicated street photographer. He received three Guggenheim fellowships and the critic Sean O'Hagan, writing in The Guardian in 2014, said, in the 1960s and 70s, Gary Winogrand defined street photography as an attitude as well as a style. And street photography has labored in his shadow ever since. So definitive are his photographs of New York. In this show, the seven Winogrand photographs are from two series and that were published in two separate books. One was called Women Are Beautiful and the other is called Public Relations. It is unfortunate that there are so few images and that there are none from his earlier book, The Animals, published in 1969. That work portrays a revealing connection between zoo animals and us human animals. Some of those photographs were engraved on my mind 50 years ago, and they're still strongly there. A street photographer can go through 50 or more rolls of 35 millimeter film in a working week, and those are 36 exposure rolls. At the time of Winogrand's death in 1984, his last work remained largely unprocessed. There were 2,500 rolls of undeveloped 35 millimeter film, 6,500 rolls of developed but not proofed film. 3,000 rolls of film with contact sheets, 
In total, he left 300,000 unedited photographs. I offer these statistics um, as an indication of what it is to be a dedicated street photographer. In many ways, Friedlander's photographs represent the antithesis of Dan Arbus's images. Where Arbus photographs are vi visually blatant, a Friedlander photograph appears to be quite personal and relaxed, and like a snapshot. Where Arbus avoids any indication of wit or humor, Friedlander's images seem to overflow with both. Friedlander, supported by Walker Evans, received three Guggenheim fellowships. In 2005, Friedlander had a major retrospective exhibition at MoMA, New York. Four of the five Friedlander images in this show are from his first book, Self-Portraits, which was published in 1970. The remaining fifth image taken at Mount Rushmore is from his second book, The American Monument, published in 1976. The wit and humor in the Rushmore image is in part related to John Sapkowski's infamous statement that all photographs can be seen as either a mirror or a window. Friedlander includes both in the one image. Since 1970, Friedlander has published 29 books of his photographs. The last book, Dog's Best Friend, a pet project was published in 2017. I mean, just the title of that uh, book indicates Friedlander's sense of humor. I want to finish with some final comments on Arbus. In 1962, Deanne Arbus changed from a 35 millimeter camera to a medium format Rolleiflex camera to enhance her portrait photography. The Rolleiflex produces a square six by six centimeter negative. This change of tools was in part the making of Arbus. The square format more emphatically framed her subjects and the larger negative opened the way to larger scale prints which emphasized the boldness of her vision. Arbus is the best-known female photographer of her generation. She was the first U.S. photographer to have her art displayed at the Venice Biennale in 1972. And I learned today from one of the gallery guides, Heather, that uh, she was very upset about being included in, in the Vien Venice Biennale. And, uh, uh, didn't live to experience it, the work being there, but uh, I, I don't think that's why she uh, ended her life. In 2000, <laughs> most people would be thrilled to have some work in the Venice Biennale. In 2004, a book published on Arbus, uh, by Aperture magazine titled Deanne Arbus was selected as one of the most important photography books in history. That book also broke the record 
for the number of copies sold for any book on photography. It had sold over 300,000 copies at that time. Traveling exhibitions of Arbus's photographs since her death have now exceeded the nine million visitors numbers of the Family of Man exhibition. Finally, Jeffrey Frankel in 2008 paid a record $553,000 for an early signed Arbus print titled A Family on the Lawn One Sunday in Westchester, New York, 1968. And it's on the, the print, one, not the print that uh, Frankel bought, but that same image is on the wall as you go into the next gallery. That photograph is obviously included in this exhibition. Thank you. And if there are any questions, uh, I'm more than happy to try to answer them. I didn't get to watch your face. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I'm one of those people. <laughs> yeah. There are a couple answers to that question. Uh, one is that this is not the size that Deanne Arbus preferred. Uh, this print, uh, what happened was that when Ian North was at the National Gallery, he bought uh, some, uh, a group of work that was part of the estate. And these prints have come from the estate. So these were earlier prints, uh, not the ones that she would have probably chosen to show later when she started printing larger. Uh, and the reason for the other answer to your question is that postmodernism. Uh, we were told uh, back in the 80s that as photographers, we had to com compete with painting, that there was only one thing that any gallery was interested in, particularly state and national galleries, was art. And that art had to be able to, to live up to uh, the painting beside it. So we were somewhat encouraged uh, to go larger. And the other thing is that digital uh, photography has made uh, printing, uh, inkjet printing, much easier to go large. Uh, Personally, for me, I had a show a few years ago, probably about 10 years ago, and I put a, up to that time, I was printing maybe the size of Lizette Modell's work, and uh, uh, I scanned my four by five negative and did some larger prints, and I fell in love with the larger prints, and I haven't looked back. Uh, that's about all I do. I, I am, strangely enough, make, doing a series, or I've been working on a series, in fact, I was working on it this morning, that I'm actually making smaller works, but still they're, they're going to be, uh, the verticals will be about that high and the horizontals about that high. Yeah. Does, does that answer your question? Good, good. Any other questions? 
Michael, I've been waiting for this. <laughs> Twenty-eight thousand, Michael. Twenty-eight thousand. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly, the, uh, that's a good point. Uh, the, certainly, people like Friedlander or Winogrand, because of the volume that they were putting out, Friedlander didn't go out and say, I'm going to do self-portraits now. He just was making them along the way as he was working, and he was doing whatever came up to him. And... Uh, uh, and then he would go through his contact sheets and he could see, well, there are quite a few self-portraits here. I should start putting these together as a, as a series of work. When you're producing that sort of volume, and most of these 35 millimeter photographers were not processing their, processing their own film or printing uh, their own work. Uh, they were having it done so that they could just keep photographing. And I think the indication that we get with those statistics for Winogrand is they're addicts. Let's face it, they're addicts. They, th their life is on the street making images. And, and uh, Bet, my partner, and I were just in Melbourne recently, and I have to say that w Melbourne just became five million people. Um, that walking down the street, I kept feeling like I was in a Friedlander or a Winogrand photograph. I mean, I, we were walking across the, the crosswalk, and coming my way was a pirate on crutches. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I, 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 I know Friedlander or Winogrand would have cherished that image, you know. Uh, it, it was, it was, it's engraved in my mind, but not on film, or, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there were so many moments that I felt that uh, uh, I was inside one of their photographs. Yes. Well, I actually have a supplementary question. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, and that's to say you uh, characterize these photographers here as East Coast and you are... Oh, West Coast. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and uh, so uh, fewer images, uh, and where the craftsmanship, craftsmanship is really important. Uh, these don't appear to be clearly not. They're not. These are not in the tradition. No, these are East Coast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can you talk to 
I think most of the printing here is, I mean, uh, the, the work that Ian North bought from the estate is not all of top quality. I, I think the larger prints of Deanne Arbus's work are the better images generally. Um, but uh, certainly these are beautifully printed and, and uh, uh, Mary Ellen Mark and, and uh, uh, Klein, I, I'm in love with their work, uh, print quality was, and uh, certainly Eggleston, uh, Walker Evans didn't care much about prints, I don't think. He, if processing a negative, it got some marks on it, he was interested in the image, not the marks. And, and you can see in some of these prints or in, in publications where some of his 8 by 10 images were not well processed, and yet there's the image, and it, you're happy to have it there to look at. Um, the West Coast, uh, it was Ansel Adams' territory, uh, Imogen Cunningham territory, and there was a tradition. I grew up with a tradition around me, and it was one of the things that shocked me coming to Adelaide in 1977 is there was no tradition. The tradition moved. I mean, the people, uh, John Kaufman and Kasner, uh, who were here at the turn of the centuries, were the the top photographers in the country. And uh, they were pictorialists, and they were, they were the, the smart people. They knew what was going on. And, and Kasno, as we all probably know, went to Sydney, and Kaufman went to Melbourne, and that's where the action is. And there was, there was no photographer in 1977 working as an artist here in Adelaide with a rep reputation that was national. Now, there are numerous photographers here in Adelaide who have national, some international reputations. It's a different, Adelaide is a much different place now than it was in 1977, photographically speaking. And I think the reaction to this work is an indication of that. To understand what you're looking at takes an education. Uh, I, I keep learning, I, and look, I wrote about four or five different versions of this talk because I kept learning a bit more here and there and, and trying to balance up things. And, and really, this, this paper that uh, uh, Maria is holding here is important if you want to follow up more of that below-the-surface uh, stuff that I'm, I tried to indicate with people like Robert Frank, who isn't even in the show, but Robert Frank is in the show. And uh, I, I would say that Alfred Stieglitz is in this show. I would say that the American Civil War photography is in this show. Um, Walker Evans is an interesting character because he used an 8 by 10 inch negative camera, a big camera, where you put the dark cloth over your head and you're looking at a ground glass with the image upside down. But in the late 20s, he also used a 35-millimeter camera. And the 35-millimeter the, the, the camera was only invented in the 1920s. It was only made... So he used different cameras for different... They're tools. The camera is a tool. 35-millimeter is quick. You can 
He took photographs in the, the New York subways. He couldn't have done it with the 8x10, but 35 millimeter was the obvious tool for the sort of work that he was doing. And, the, and, uh, and yet his work still connects back to the 19th century and to, say, the Civil War photographs that are um, very staged, big camera photographs. So uh, that's part of this huge, gigantic area that's below the surface here for me. And Ed, uh, I might just um, say, I want to just say thank you so much. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. For, uh, I get excited. Yeah, for excavating uh, with us today. It's just been really very, very informative. And um, we thank you deeply for all the um, thought that you've put into it, research, and the four drafts um, that came before this talk. So thank, thank you very much. Thank you.